This is History Untold. I'm Jesse Mazzoni. Each episode, our guests from around the world will share parts of history that are often unknown or misunderstood. There's no single perspective or story that encompasses the whole truth. So if you hear something that doesn't sound right or you disagree with anything that a guest or I says, please let us know. Email us at historyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Today, we have Ishida Sinha Roy. Um, She's going to be discussing some important moments from India's history. So uh, my name is Ishita Sinha Roy, and I am a professor of media studies at Allegheny College, where I've been teaching media and cultural studies since 2001. And my particular interests are in nation branding and looking at how nations today are competing with each other to tell their stories as a way of positioning themselves in the hierarchy of globalization. And though this sounds uh, pretty wishy-washy, There are billions of dollars involved in this enterprise of professional storytelling and branding uh, to get a competitive economic, political, and social cultural advantage. So part of that storytelling has been around history. And this idea of, uh, you know, retelling history has become more and more of a concern today. So what we're seeing is that with the rise of populism across countries, populist governments that have come into power are taking or seizing this opportunity to retell history to their advantage. Right. And uh, in many cases, this involves the blurring of religious and cultural mythologies Mm. with history so that it becomes really difficult to tell uh, what was supposed to be at least loosely fact-based because we know that history is discursive. Right. And so history itself is a particular kind of narrativizing, right? Right. But this fusion of history and mythology makes it a whole different animal. That is interesting. I haven't heard of that before. Right. Now, the second dangerous thing that's happening is, of course, what Chimamanda Adichie refers to as the danger of a single story, which is that autocratic governments are also insisting on one dominant cultural narrative. And in the recasting of history in this very popular slash populist way, they're also cementing their own ideologies. Right. And if you package the story well and uh, insert the values that a current audience might be seeking to reaffirm or make sense of the world around them, then you can see how this can be used in very insidious ways to, for instance, justify genocide, human rights violations, civil rights violations, and ultimately the demise of democracy. 
I just in 2018 I published a book called Manufacturing Indianness, and it was based on 10 years of researching and talking to media professionals, etc., in India about how this is unfolding there. Okay. And so one of the immediate examples is taking the iconic figure of Mahatma Gandhi, mm-hmm. and uh, we're globally familiar with him. Uh, most of us know that when um, he, start, he, along with other political figures, started the movement to end British colonization in India, one of his symbolic gestures um, was to uh, encourage Indians to adopt what was known as khadi, K-H-A-D-I, which is homespun cotton cloth. Right. And in the process to reject store-bought British textiles. Right. And the move was genius because it economically struck at the empire, but it also gave Indians at that time a very powerful symbolic and material action around which to stage their protest against imposed rule and imposed economic tariffs on them, right? Right. Now, for decades since we got our independence in 1947, mm-hmm. the Khadi Village Industries Commission in India would use the image of Mahatma Gandhi spinning this handmade yarn or this handmade khadi. And it was everywhere on calendars, diaries, etc. right? Because it was like a national an symbol. National symbol. Yeah. Today we have uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi in India, who, along with his political party, the BJP, Um, has launched a new kind of populist nationalist movement that uh, sort of declares that India can only be great again if we go back to becoming a purely Hindu nation and exorcising ourselves of all foreigners. But here, the word foreigner particularly is loaded because it refers to Muslims Um, And not just Muslims who might have come from Pakistan or elsewhere, but we're talking about Indian Muslims who have suddenly become foreign in their own land, right? And so um, what he has done in one of his several attempts to recast history has been to replace the image of Gandhi at the spinning wheel with one of himself, Yeah, and this was done uh, overnight without any conversation or involvement of the Kadi Village Industries Commission. Wow. And so in a way, he's trying to rewrite um, Gandhi out of the historical consciousness and replace himself as the savior of this new India. Also pertinent to that example is the fact that the man who killed or assassinated Gandhi was part of this Hindu revivalist movement. Okay. The Hindutva movement. Okay. That uh, defines Indianness in very narrow parochial religious terms. 
Okay. And not in the spirit of the constitution where India declared itself to be a secular socialist democracy. Okay. So that, that man who assassinated Gandhi, he started that kind of movement around this. He was this part of that movement. He didn't start it. He was part of that movement. Okay. And now the Modi government is hailing him as the new nationalist hero. Okay. So we are, we are definitely seeing this move away from, well, Gandhi was this pacifist, um, you know, um, national icon, but he really sold the country down the drain. Okay. Right? The real hero was Godse, the man who assassinated Gandhi, because he recognized that Gandhi gave away what is now Pakistan and okay. Bangladesh. Um, and carved up the Hindu nation, right? Okay. And this is the new history that the party is trying to create. Okay, that is very interesting. I think the illustration that you gave of um, Modi replacing Gandhi in that national image with himself, I think that's pretty telling as to the significance of Gandhi at that time. And so can you maybe explain for the listeners more like how that movement was going on at the time of Gandhi and where that trajectory was following to get India to where it is right now with the situation? I'll try and give the really like, um, these are the ingredients in your Coke bottle version of it. Okay. It's important for people to understand that India has a his has multiple histories. Okay. Uh, because the idea of India did not come into being as one unified nation until the British really um, conquered, right, and brought together all the states that we now know as India. Okay. Until then, uh, what we now know as India, Pakistan, Bangladesh were princely states, each with its own monarch. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, political invasions, etc., caused an ebb and flow of empires across India, mm-hmm. right? So the reason why this is important is to understand that if you travel to India, you're going to see an amazing diversity of ethnicities, religions, languages, etc., that are the amazing result of that incubation, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So uh, most people tend to think of India, the modern nation, from the moment it came into being, uh, which was 1947 and freedom from British rule. Mm-hmm. So let's start at that moment, because that's kind of uh, a good gateway into our contemporary uh, position, right? So when the British left India, 24 hours before they departed, uh, sorry, uh, not 24 hours, 48 hours before they departed, uh, they flew in a gentleman from London who was given the unhappy task of deciding which country or what parts of the country would be India, what parts would be Pakistan. Oh, okay. Right? And he was given... I'm sorry, he's British, this man? Yes. So he was flown in from London. He'd never been in India before in in what used to be known as the British Raj or the jewel in the crown, right? 
He was given a bunch of outdated census reports because remember that India and Pakistan were going to be formed uh, on the basis of religion. Okay. okay. Um, Pakistan would be predominantly Muslim. Mm -hmm. India would be those who are predominantly Hindu. Okay. And um, he had 48 hours to do this. And he wrote a letter to his son saying that he would be forever hated by history because of what he had to do. And he's correct. Right. Because initially when the British left, what is now Bangladesh was called East Pakistan. Oh. And what is now Pakistan was called West Pakistan with India in the middle. Wow. And overnight, uh, you know, both India and Pakistan got their independence on the 15th of August, 1947. Overnight, Hindus and Muslims had to cross into the right country. Oh my. And one of the largest genocides took place in that move. Wow. Right? Because suddenly neighbors turned on neighbors and there were train loads of corpses arriving across both sides of the border. Wow. There was tremendous strife. And um, in true imperial fashion, therefore, the British departing left behind their legacy in that. Right. Right. Divide and rule has always been the mantra. Right. right. So if you understand where the seeds of Islamophobia come from, that's the germinating moment. Okay. And then um, Nehru was the first prime minister of India, and he and his cabinet were really hell-bent on making India a socialist democracy because uh, they believed that an agrarian culture like India should not overlook its farmers. Okay. And the idea of, therefore, a public net, uh, safety network was essential. And you have to remember that the economy had been decimated by British rule. So we were rebuilding. Right. Right. Secondly, they stressed secular. That meant that all religions would be respected. Okay. And this was necessary as a first step towards healing. And can I ask a question? You said Modi, he wants to go back to a time where it was only Hindus in India, but it sounds like there never was that time. There never was. And thank you for that clarification, because this is a constructed historical narrativization, right? right? And I, I want to also just ask if you can clarify, whenever Modi declared that foreigners were um, basically Muslims in the country, that was very overtly done, correct? I believe I read that. That wasn't like a hidden message no. at all. No, and he ran on that platform. Okay. Right? So um, he ran, he managed to very uh, smoothly integrate uh, economic liberalism with religious fundamentalism, right? Okay. And so... This idea of just as in America, and I don't want to make this easy cultural relativist argument, but this might be helpful for those trying to wrap their heads around this, right? Okay. So in America right now, we have the Make America Great Again movement, which similarly says outsiders, particularly China, are a threat to the nation's economy. Mm -hmm. Extend that argument and any immigrant becomes suspect, 
So to make America great again, we must go back to this fantasy space of a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant American, right? right? Though many of the current administration supporters are not necessarily Protestant, Right. right? But race in this case has become the galvanizing factor, race and ethnicity, right? Right. Similarly, in uh, India, the platform of um, Make in India, which is the slogan that Modi is using, is one about creating a powerful economy where foreign businesses are welcome to invest and produce in India. Mm-hmm. But India is, uh, you know, the, the Indian national pride is being built on this idea of, again, no foreigners because uh, foreigners, in particular Muslims, have historically proven that they cannot be trusted, that they're not good for the nation. Okay. Right? And so by scapegoating particular groups, both in the U.S. example and in India, you're getting a sense of how history is repeating old patterns. We've seen this happen several times in the past, but also rewriting the democratic fabric of the countries involved. Right, right. Because it's invalidating citizens of its own country. It's invalidating citizens. And as you are more familiar with the American case, you're seeing an erosion of civil liberties. Right. So um, that's, you know, a powerful realization. And in the case of a country like India, you know, there's a, a critical historian by the name of Anne Laura Stoller. And um, when she was writing about the aftermath of the Iraq war, mm-hmm. uh, she said that to, and I'm quoting her here, to think with ruins of empire is to emphasize less the artifacts of empire as dead matter or remnants of a defunct regime than to attend to their reappropriations and strategic and active positioning within the politics of the present. And it's a mouthful, but what she's actually talking about is what happens with the uh, ways in which empire building uses powerful symbols, material artifacts, etc., and reconstructs them, repackages them with new meanings to create new regimes of power. Okay, that's interesting. Right? And this typically happens through popular culture. Mm-hmm. So in 2018, uh, there was a huge controversy in India over the release of a Bollywood, which is popular Indian cinema. So Mm -hmm. over a Bollywood film. And the film was uh, historo-mythological. So it was completely fictional, Mm -hmm. uh, loosely borrowing bits of history and mythology. And it was actually based on a 14th century king, right? Um, uh, uh, So a Muslim emperor by the name of Alauddin Khilji. Mm -hmm. And the legend goes that uh, his eye fell upon this Hindu kingdom because he was so taken up by the beauty of its queen, who was named Padmavati. Its values resounded with the Hindutva 
um, ideologies. So one would have thought that this film would be hailed as uh, an instant hit. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the uh, followers of the current political administration, the Modi administration, uh, raised a ruckus claiming that there was a scene in the movie that showed uh, a lustful, intimate fantasy um, of, you know, by the Muslim king that centered on Padmavati. Now, this was not true. It wasn't in the film, but it was enough. Just the idea that there could be a lustful thought shown on the screen that captured a relationship that was Hindu-Muslim was wow. enough to get that film banned for many, many, many months. Wow. Yeah, and so they had to rename the film into Padmavat and not Padmavati. What does to, what's that change? So it changes the reference to the original queen. Okay. And any historical connection is therefore se- severed, apparently, right? So you can see how the battles play out even in popular culture. Yeah, it's so popular culture right so yeah so to clarify the supporters were the supporters of Modi were angry that it even displayed that potential relationship between someone who is Muslim and someone who's Hindu right they believed that there was an intimate scene in the movie where the Muslim king has this lustful fantasy about the Hindu queen which there wasn't Mm-hmm. But what I'm pointing to is that even the idea of a fantasy relationship is so threatening. And in India, those types of relationships happen, right? I mean, you have people in India who are from different religions who get married, correct? That's not correct. But like interracial happen. relationships in the US, these have become more fraught. Okay, right? so they're becoming but, more fraught over time? Absolutely, because okay. of the current um, uh, sentiments, right? Okay. Yeah, would you say that that is something that is a, a major difficulty for couples that find themselves in a, you know, an interreligious relationship? Is that something that is very challenging for most people to bring their partner to meet their families and make that work? Or on average, you feel like it it ends up working out? So it depends. I mean, uh, in in any country is diverse. So it would be wrong to just, uh, you know, uh, take broad sweeps with a paintbrush. Right. There are families that are extremely accommodating and have no problem. I'm talking about society accepting. Right. Right. Uh, So at the family level, there will be differences. Mm -hmm. But in a moment where the culture is extremely Islamophobic, one can imagine the repercussions of that on the relationship. Right. Right. In fact, in India, there was a term that came into the social cultural vocabulary a few years ago, which was love jihad. Oh, man. What is that? The idea that was being propagated by the BJP, which is the political party in power, by the BJP followers, was that Muslim men were uh, strategically seducing and converting Hindu women wow. into Islam, right? Wow. And um, this resulted in a lot of communal violence, right? Yeah. 
And you can imagine it therefore targeted women who had married Muslim men uh, out of love and were in many cases ostracized and also denied the help of the state when there were communal rights, etc. Right. Right. So uh, we, you know, one has to look at how uh, the sort of uh, these kinds of political and popular and populist ideologies become a network of story or inform the network of storytelling right and amplify the dominant cultural mood right Right. and history in that way is fascinating for me because people think of history as dead and in the past Mm -hmm. and I always think of history as this very dynamic happening in the moment enterprise right and really what we need to look at is who is able to reinvent that story how are they doing it and why so speaking of um changing the historical narrative i know before you mentioned that um the economy shifting over time in india has played a huge role in um this this growing sense of populism can you explain the history around that a little bit more so um you know, so economic liberalization in the late 1990s when India decides it would open its market. And um, this, of course, brought great changes at a very fast pace, uh, not just economically, but socially, because okay. people had a glimpse of what money could buy. Right. And as multinationals moved into India, earning power went up, the middle class suddenly expanded and was doing extremely well. Mm -hmm. And the lower classes saw the chance of social mobility too, Mm -hmm. even though the villages were still left behind, right? But with these social changes came some of the pressures I mentioned, right? Men chaffing at the fact that women were going to work. And I'm not talking about upper middle class, um, you know, families, et cetera, necessarily, though there are conservative families there as well. <laughs> but the idea that, you know, working class family suddenly has, experiences a shift in who's the breadwinner. Right. Or the fact that if a woman has access to economic independence, she can actually tell her husband to get out. Right, right. Right. And as I said, in many cases, young women are choosing college education. And we're talking about, again, the urban scenario, right? right? But they're opting for higher education. They're opting for work, And this has caused terrific uh, social change. So um, the social changes involving gender roles is a big one. The other thing is also that with multinationals coming in, uh, there's been a lot of anxiety around changing moral values as corrupted by the West. Okay. So uh, the attempt by those who are regressive in politics Mm -hmm has been to resurrect mythologies that put Indian virtuous womanhood at the center. Okay. okay. And we've, I mean, this is part of a larger dis- and separate discussion, but we've always had mythologies that position the nation as a motherland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this idea of a mother figure is really potent. 
And um, we all know that mothers are supposed to be asexual. Okay, right. 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 So the idea of like suddenly uh, bringing back the sacrificial mother figure, um, accusing Western culture, but also foreigners of trying to violate her virtue, ignoring the atrocities that are being committed against women in one's own homeland. All of these are the signs of a struggle that is being waged about who we are as a nation, but through the woman's body. Right. 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 And then, of course, comes add to that the question of religion. And so the question of religion um, added to that is, you know, the question of Islamophobia. I mentioned Modi's party as belonging as as being um, responsible for the surge of what we call Hindutva, which is H-I-N-D-U-T-V-A, not to be confused with Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Hindutva is a distorted political version of Hinduism. Okay. And it's one where the distortions are being used to use to combine Islamophobia and xenophobia, right? The fear of Muslims and the fear of foreigners and uh, construct this artificial notion of what a true Indian is through an equally false idea of what, uh, how Indianness and Hinduism are the same. Right. Right. And one should also clarify that when they're talking about Hinduism, it's a politically constructed version of the same. Okay. Which we, we see that type of, um, we see that used in several countries around the world with right. all different religions. We see Absolutely. that politicalization. Of- yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's the fastest way to get to uh, 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 start a populist movement, honestly, right? right? And so, um, you know, so Modi used, when he was uh, the chief minister of Gujarat, which is a state in North uh, West India, um, he was very smart in championing the economic development of that state. Mm-hmm. Uh, running a very powerful media campaign touting every so-called achievement. So he truly understood the power of social media Mm -hmm. and the power of visibility through the media to create an image of yourself. Right. Right. And, um, you know, as he became more and more popular in the state because of his economic um, ambitions and his so-called... achievements in that arena, he also then started championing this anti-Islamist rhetoric. Right. And under his tenure as chief minister, you had one of the worst communal riots in Gujarat. And uh, many people still believe that his administration had a hand to play in orchestrating it because the Hindu tour rioters were seen with computer printouts of houses to target, etc. Wow. Wow. Right? Yeah. But it didn't deter voters from voting him into power. Mm-hmm. And um, part of that was because India was so hungry for economic growth and progress. And opening to free market had led a lot of Indians to taste what could happen. Right. 
right? And so they wanted a leader who would be at least inclined towards seeing India grow in those ways. Right. And it made a lot of um, disempowered Indians feel that Hindutva gave them a strong identity, a strong sense of national pride. Mm-hmm. And something to rally around and use to scapegoat marginalized communities like Muslims, lower castes, etc., who were doing well economically. Right. And in many cases, better than these disenfranchised populations, right? right. So, uh, yeah, so how did we get here? That's the short story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are terrific books out there. Um, that sort of laid out in more detail. And certainly it's a cautionary tale, like men, like the one we're witnessing here, right? Definitely. And unfortunately, one that has been seen across history, across the world, so mm-hmm. many times in so many ways. And I, I really like the conversation around the different strategies that are used by populist movements because they're the same strategies. They're executed in different places with different cultures, different um, needs, right? There are different needs in Mm -hmm. every place, Mm -hmm. but they generally all follow the same format. And we all need to be aware of, of what those tools are. Right. So um, it's complex and one has to be vigilant about how we are making history. Right. Right. What part of history do we want to be involved in? Right. How do we want to be remembered in history? Yeah. Thank you so much for being on with us today. 